This is Jeremy Bassetti, and you're listening to Travel Writing World, a podcast featuring interviews with travel writers about their work and about the business and craft of travel writing. You can find the episode show notes, free travel writing resources, and much more at travelwritingworld.com. Each year, 200 million people embark on a pilgrimage of some kind. We have been making ritual journeys for millennia, and while most of us have seen our mobility curtailed in recent months due to the pandemic, the impulse to travel somewhere sacred to us remains. In her new book, We Are Pilgrims, Victoria Preston seeks to understand the reasons why we set forth in search of solace, liberation, faith, and enlightenment. I hope you enjoyed this wide-ranging conversation with Victoria Preston. Victoria, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to speak with you today about your new book, We Are Pilgrims. Um, it's, a, it's a meaty book to chew on, and uh, maybe it's best if we can just start off by asking you to tell us a little bit about it. It, it really is a book about why we are pilgrims. So uh, I think about 200 million people a year on average go on some kind of pilgrimage or another. Uh, and of all faiths, not, uh, you know, when I when I quote that number, people often say to me, oh, do you mean the Hajj? And I say, no, the Hajj is relatively small numbers. Actually, Hindu pilgrimages tend to be in the tens of millions. And, uh, you know, then you have the pilgrimage to Mashhad in, in Iran, that's also in very high numbers. And then you have the Arba'in pilgrimage in, in, in Iraq, which is, I think, claims to be the largest single annual pilgrimage event in the world. Uh, I really wanted to understand why we're all doing this. You know, we're all doing it uh, all over the world. And what are we doing when we do it? Mm-hmm. So I think I, I, I started from an impulse of... We came, my husband and I were living in Canada, working there. We came back and we were saying, okay, we, we're back here now. What should we do? How are we going to figure it out? And he said, well, you know, why, don't, why, don't we, uh, why don't we walk to Santiago de Compostela? And I said, well, why? You know, I mean, we live in London. We've been to Santiago de Compostela and on, a, on a work conference. And yes, it's very interesting. But what, where does this impulse come from? And... Uh, once I began reading about it and thinking about it, it became clear that it's so universal. It's a very difficult topic to kind of narrow down. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wanted to focus really not on the not on the uh, roots of the many many books about pilgrim routes and about the journeys themselves. Many books about destinations and the kind of phenomenal shrines that you get to see at the end of these. Uh, journeys, but I wanted to really focus on intention. You know, what, what, why do we do it, and what are we doing when we do it? Mm-hmm. So, um, your book is entitled "We Are Pilgrims," and uh, you know, as the uh, examples you just gave might uh, suggest, you know, pilgrimage typically has a religious connotation. But in your book, I think it's much more than the, than that. Your chapters are broken down into you know ten possible motives for for human pilgrimages or journeying. Um, and many of those have uh, little to do ostensibly with the idea of religion, um, like survival and enlightenment. So um, what about some of these other motives for travel uh, other than faith and, and spirituality? I think one of the sort of fundamental drivers of pilgrimage is very early 
seasonal festivals, seasonal practices, when we, as hunter-gatherers, you know, followed the herd. So the, uh, the oldest site that I came across when I was doing the research for the book is in southern Turkey, Gobekli Tepe, and it dates back about 12,000 years. And the guys who've been who've been excavating that site uh, so sort of since about the 1970s realized when they were uncovering all these structures that had been buried for, for really hundreds of years uh, was, was that there was no evidence of habitation there but there were evidence of very elaborate temple structures and giving rise to the idea that, you know, first came the temple and then the city. So the idea of coming together in a, in a kind of collective effort to a single place of importance actually precedes a time when we actually lived in large groups. So the idea that arose out of that, uh, which, which I, I found uh, a kind of more modern example in the Blackfoot Indians of, of North America, is that... There was a lot of value in collaboration at times of great abundance, harvest time, or, or, or when flocks were, were, were moving to a particular place, where at, at other times of year, small bands of people would have been in competition and, and competing for scarce resources. And actually, you can see that same idea of collaboration or at least peacekeeping at very certain, you know, very important times of the year is played out in 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 the Arabian Peninsula, where typically tribes were competing with each other until it came to the Hajj, and there was a kind of peace, uh, and there was agreement. No, you know, you don't you don't beat up on 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 other tribes when you're on your way to Mecca. So that that idea of seasonal collaboration, I think, is for me is where it began. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that part of the book, I think, that was at the beginning. Uh, what was was very interesting first came the temple then the city which you know suggests that you know prior to urban organization you know there was this kind of religious organization or religious site of import, importance but i i guess I, are you suggesting here that kind of season, seasonal migrations and survival led to religious organization which led to urban organization I I think I think what I'm what I'm suggesting is that if you if you if you look at it as a kind of an evolutionary code of of how how we lived, then you could say, well, here we were, we were small bands of people, we followed the we followed the herds that were coming to green pastures, we collaborated at those times when they were there, and we gave thanks for the abundance. Uh, you know, we had a party, we gave thanks, and in that act of giving thanks became more and more elaborate so mm-hmm. giving thanks for the harvest and then the and the, and then the the flip side of that is hope for the hope for the next season that the hopefully you know at the end of this abundant season you will be safe through the winter and you'll come out the other side um so this idea of pilgrimage as being something that happens at these sort of uh, axis points of the year spring and spring and autumn beginning of the season end of the season mm-hmm. and that's did it did it lead to sorry go ahead did it lead to did it lead to you know bigger settlements i, I don't really know because i'm not you know i'm not a, an anthropologist actually i'm you know 
I don't know if there's any kind of causation, but you can see in the evolution of places like Jerusalem that there's an enormous amount of economic value to, to, that comes out of, and, and, in, and in Mecca, actually, uh, and in Masad, these big centers, that there's a huge amount of value that comes out of these seasonal gatherings. And, and actually, a, a, a Muslim friend of mine who's a Meccan by, by birth said to me, well, you know what, the thing about Mecca is that you have, you have knowledge, you have trade, and you have faith. These are the, these are the cornerstones. And, I, and, and once, he, once he showed me that, I realized, well, you have the same at Delphi. Mm. You know, you have, the, uh, you have learning, you have the exchange of ideas, you have trading. You have places like the Pushkar Camel Fair, you have you know, marriage, people coming together to, when you live in a small community, you need your son or daughter to marry somebody from another village because you've got to broaden the, the gene pool. So these, they started to have a very uh, useful human function as well as just in the moment. You know, they had a much wider social value. Mm-hmm. Two things uh, are coming to mind here. And, and the first is the etymology of the word pilgrimage, as you note in the book, um, which comes from Latin and refers to something like, you know, wandering into a field or <laughs> or walking across the field. Across yeah. the field. Um, and, and this, I think, you know, relates to this idea that you just brought up about people, you know, following the seasonal migratory patterns for, for survival, you know, people literally, you know, taking a walk. Um, and secondly, you know this when you when you mention uh, Mecca here, um, what what comes to mind is you know the the power of pilgrimage in terms of uh, tempering uh, minds, uh, and you know making us making people humans feel you know kinship with others per uh, you know the story of Malcolm X that you bring up in, in the book, can't they? Yeah, and I I, I love that uh, you know to discover the the Malcolm X. I loved discovering during the course of writing the book. You know, I I felt like I met many many characters along my own journey. I mean, Malcolm X being one who who who's you know comes to comes to Mecca with sort of very deeply held. Uh, strongly held views and and sort of anger against uh, the world, and when he sees the kind of common humanity together, uh, he feels very very differently. And when I started r- reading around that, I saw that read many many accounts of people who had been on the Hajj, and it, it, this idea came up over and over again of the sense of belonging to this huge humanity, and and knowing that your own in in a way your own in, insignificance is a, is a massive relief in fact mm-hmm. um, and i certainly found that myself walking to rome that that knowing that for 2000 years practically people had been walking to 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 rome and that you're nothing you know in in your moment on the road your your few days here on the road is nothing you're just a speck of dust that comes and goes and actually that's very liberating it's mm-hmm. a very liberating <laughs> feeling right yeah, um, Malcolm X. You you kind of dig into this in the book a little bit, uh, you know, being associated and and really being one of the the um, focal uh, proponents of the nation of is- Islam, which in, in the United States is <coughs> designated. Excuse me, <laughs> which in the United States is designated as a, you know hate group uh, by the Southern yeah. Poverty Law Center, uh, and yet you know Malcolm X has a falling out with them precisely because of that and at 
you know, at the moment that he goes to Mecca, he has this awakening that you're you're describing here, and he comes to term with you know comes to terms with the shared humanity, and it's for that reason that he's killed or assassinated uh, by the more yeah. radical f- uh, fringe. So, uh, you know, pilgrimages pilgrimages here um, are are a mo- moderating, uh, you know, in many ways to the to the to the radical mind. Yes, and and actually, the the um, research by a team at Harvard suggests uh, that. Well, so I'm just looking here in the in the text. It's research by a team at Harvard suggests that while the Hajj may form a common Islamic identity, it does not do so at the expense of non-Muslims, uh, and actually, it it extends notions of equality and harmony to adherents of other religions. So. For the festival, for, for a lot of people going to these big uh, festivals, it gives them a unique experience of being outside their own immediate environment, about their outside their own immediate sort of value, comfort. And I, I think there is uh, that's one of for me that's one of the great uh, experiences of of pilgrimage uh, is is that connectivity with with people from around the world. Mm-hmm. But in the moment of doing, you're being on your pilgrimage yourself. You are alone. You know, you are a sole individual. That's the, that's the paradox of it, in a way. Mm-hmm. And of course, the uh, the counterpoint to this is, you know, what we've been seeing recently in in Washington. Um, we're recording this on January eighth, and just a few days ago, we all saw, you know, the mobs sacking the Capitol building on television. Um, and you know, I think we can ascribe a positive connotation to pilgrim and pilgrimage. Um, but um, pilgrimage in, in the very broad sense of the term of people moving and walking, you know, for, I guess, a shared meaning, um, they they can also fan the flames of division and, and hate as much as they can, you know, push us all to see the beauty of human kinship. Um, and I know the, the, the events in D.C. are, are very fresh, but I'm wondering if you had any thoughts about pilgrimages from what we would consider kind of like violent or 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 negative. Well, uh, it's interesting that you bring up the uh, you bring up the issue of the capital because I actually was texting with a friend of mine in Boston um, after that event and and. We were talking about the kind of the place, you know, what the the association of the place, and 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 I was saying, well, this is, you know, what we call in communications, this is propaganda of the deed, you know, something which stood at one time as an icon of democracy now becomes tainted by the events that have happened, and actually, how do you restore the capital back as a kind of icon, as a, as a, as an emblem, really, uh, of of Western democracy and and the values that we share. And actually this notion of place, this sort of very, very powerful thing that place has on us and the hold it has on us, you see in those events uh, the other night, because those people did not just coalesce, uh, you know, in front of the Smithsonian or or coalesce at any other uh, point on the mall or the mall, they went to that place and, it, and it, it's not just that they wanted to get inside and be photographed there and all of those things, but the place itself has this big 
symbolic value. And the same is true of pilgrim sites. You know, St. Peter's in Rome. You know, you get mm-hmm. you get to Rome, and and there it is. It's absolutely huge. You can't you can't be in any doubt that this is uh, the center of the you know Roman Catholic world. And actually, you know, Constantine. Uh, the great knew this, and that's why when he, be, you know, when he became the emperor, he reestablished these pilgrims. I mean, he was he he established the shrines for Peter and Paul in in, in Rome. He established the uh, um, the, the holy you know his, through his mother actually Helen the 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 church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem, and and he had the remains of the three magi taken to Constantinople. So in his three centers of power. He had got a link between the place, the story, the narrative of Christianity, and and the object, uh, the, you know, the the these uh, relics and so on. So I think when we see the events in you know the events that played out the other night, it's just part of history reminding us how important place is. And actually, at the end of our conversation, my American friend said to me, "Yeah, you know, the last time people were setting fire." down there in Washington, D.C. was 1812, and actually it was you guys, the British. So <laughs> don't feel too pleased with yourself. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting that you you refer here as, uh, I mean, Washington in some ways as a, a spiritual center or spiritual place, and, and spiritual in like the secular sense, like a secular religion, spiritual center, if that, if that makes any sense at all. But what about this idea of, you know, pilgrimages not focusing so much on the object or the ends, uh, the sacred space, but the, the journey of the pilgrimage itself as the transformational aspect of it? Mm, I, uh, well, I think, I think it is that idea of stepping off, you know, stepping off the road. I mean, we're all, you know, we're very, very busy in our daily lives and we, we want to think clearly about things. We get on the yoga mat or we, you know, meditate or we mm-hmm. take time out. But, but actually, you know, as, as Ralph Waldo Emerson said, you, you know, you can't, you can't think these big thoughts and have clarity of mind when you're sitting in your own sitting room, even if nobody else is in there with you. And the thing about the, the journey itself is that you are nowhere. You're not where you started, you're not where you finished. You're on a you're you're in this sort of liminal space between somewhere and nowhere, and it is that not being anywhere that in in a way frees you, uh, and gives uh, pilgrimages sort of different aspect. I, I imagine that people who are just you know doing long distance hikes would say this is the same thing for a long distance hike. You know you have the same sense of being outside your daily life, and I would agree with that. Mm-hmm. But in in a way, it's about intention, you know. Well, yeah, what, that, it's like saying, "What's the difference?" Sorry, between sort of tourism, well, you know, what's the difference? I mean, I've been to Rome many, many times as a child, and with my parents, I've been as a tourist, as an adult, and but I went there on a pilgrimage. It was different, and it's all about intention. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so let's talk about the the in, intention then, um, you know, because you know some of us travel or. Um, I don't know, they go on pilgrimages and, and they can be, I guess, sometimes let down. I mean, they go out and, and search for transformation on pilgrimages or on journeys. And I guess when the clouds don't part and the hand of God doesn't, you know, come down and touch the, the pilgrims in the head, they, they can feel disappointed, right? So um, I guess how, how necessary is an individual, like their explicit desire for 
for transformation or enlightenment or wonder or solace in achieving those goals? Like what, what, how important is the intention in a pilgrimage? I think, I think intention is incredibly important and, and, uh, and I think it's highly, highly personal and individual. So I, I can know what my intention is, but I, I can't possibly know really what your intention is. I mean, we could say, like a, a friend of mine in in Texas said, I said, oh, I'm, you know, I'm going to Jerusalem, and she said, oh, well, you know, my church group is going to go there at some point, and actually. When I was in Jerusalem, I saw these church groups that were, were, were kind of winding through the streets of Jerusalem, carrying the, you know replicas of the cross and stopping at the stations of the cross in the old city and so on. And that's their thing. That wasn't my thing. We were in the same place. We'd both gone there on a pilgrimage, but we our, our experiences were completely different, and so were our intentions. So I I can't speak for them because I, I don't know what I don't know why they were there. I, I barely knew where I was there, really. <laughs> I mean, that's the that's the truth of it, isn't it? <laughs> when you, but you know, if I ask you, Jeremy, you know, why why do you travel so much? You probably it's probably hard to answer, isn't it? Mm, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. It's true, but you know, sometimes uh, sometimes I travel for the need to get away, and sometimes I travel for a very specific purpose. But very rarely do I, I say to myself. You know, I, I I want to trans <laughs> I want to transform. I just transform myself. <laughs> um, I it is transformative for a lot of people though, and 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 I think it was for me too. By the way, even though I you know I'm not I, I do not belong to an organized religion, I found the experience very transformative, mm-hmm. and it was this moment. You know, I, as it was it was a moment I had set off on the journey with a very old friend of mine, and. You know, we were kind of getting ourselves in the in the groove. We were carrying our bags. We didn't have any, you know, we just carried what we wanted, what we needed on our backs. We didn't have any additional luggage or we didn't know where we would be each night. We just walked until we arrived. So we had a complete freedom. And then I started thinking about actually the refugee crisis because, you know, in Europe here, it's it's quite a big thing. A lot of people you know, escaping from war, from famine, from oppressive uh, government and so on. I started thinking about young families who were traveling to try and get, to, you know, to a better place and had to carry everything they wanted on their backs and so on. And it was useful, helpful reflection for me because I was really uh, there by choice and not by necessity. Mm-hmm. But it was... It, it actually, the, for me, the transformative moment was to recognize how uh, that I was a speck of dust and that my life was a, a fleeting moment in the great arc of time. And they just found it sort of profoundly liberating. Mm-hmm. It's humbling as well. And, you know, I think the listeners will be able to tell uh, from our conversation that, you know, your book is you know, very much uh, what I would call a, a big idea book. It's, it's um, not necessarily a, a narrative travel book, although it does have, you know, a narrative component to it, but it's it's more about these, you know, big ideas. And it's, as I mentioned earlier, it's it's meaty and it's wonderful and, and it's enriching. <clears throat> um, 
uh, to read uh, because of that. Thank you. Um, you were just talking now about big ideas. And I, I mm-hmm. was thinking uh, earlier today about Pandit Nehru as being one of the people I met on my research journey. Uh, you know, the, 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 the first leader of a, of a, of a free India. And what was interesting about him was that, you know, he he wanted to create a secular country. He 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 really thought that religion and superstition and, and all, the, all of these ideas were, were holding India back. But then he himself uh, wanted that when he died, that his uh, ashes would be scattered in the, the Ganges, which is the, you know, the sacred river that allows your soul to cross to the other side and, and, and so on. So we can, you know, we, we we're not consistent in our view of whether we are really a secular human or 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 a, a human with a sort of sp- spiritual bent. It's not so clear cut, is it? Just a quick note, and we'll get right back to the episode. If you enjoy the podcast, please leave a review on your favorite podcasting app, or consider supporting the show with only a few dollars a month at travelwritingworld.com/support. What drew you to explore the idea of, of pilgrimage? You'd mentioned earlier that you and uh, I think your husband, on yeah. returning from Canada, went on to walk the Camino. And you just mentioned that sometimes you, you can't explain you know, why it is that people uh, travel. But do you have any um, sense of you know, the, 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 the internal push or the internal pull to to get you and to explore not just the world, but the, the idea of pilgrimage itself. Like why, what compelled you to put this book together and to write about it? That's a, that's a, that's a useful question. Thank you. I, I think in part it's because we, we, we had this, we bought this very, very old house, um, which we used to call the derelict house in the swamp because it was, <laughs> You know, had had literally no work done on it for a hundred years, and the, you know, the wiring had been put in the 1920s. It was absolutely perilous, and uh, we bought it uh, from a poet, uh, uh, Anne Beresford. And as soon as we, the, the first time we went to see the house and walked, you know, the the, the estate agent or the realtor, uh, you know greeted us at the door. And as soon as I stepped into the hallway, I knew there was something about this house. And I said, oh, I think an artist lives here. And he said, no, no, no. I said, no, I feel it really very strongly. And he said, oh, no, actually, it's a poet. And when we were in the process of deciding whether or not we were going to commit to this very big project, uh, I got to know Anne quite well. And we started talking about uh, the writer W.G. Seabold, and he, uh, Seabold's book, The Rings of Saturn, is a kind of metaphor for pilgrimage. Uh, I mean, it, it's ostensibly a walk around East Anglia, that part of England where that house is. Uh, and actually, there's an episode in the book in which he comes to see uh, uh, Michael Hamburger, uh, also a poet, and 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 and, and Beresford was widowed uh, when when I met her and then Michael Hamburger had been her husband. And Siebold was was a, was a Gentile, German Gentile. Michael Hamburger was a German Jew. And the two became friends. And 
in order to try and understand the cruelty of the human condition, you know, Siebold kind of took on this, uh, he took on a sort of mantle of another person and in part a mantle of Michael Hamburger. And actually a lot of pilgrimage is about changing your clothes at the beginning of the Hajj, people change out of their regular clothes at the beginning of the, you know, Japanese Shinto pilgrimages, people change into special pilgrim clothes. People cast off their own personality in order to take on the, the kind of mantle of the pilgrim. And I, I'd read I'd read Siebold's book long time before we ever saw this house. And on buying the house, I, I you know I read it many, many more times. And I became very interested in partly because the house appears in the book. And there's an episode in the book where Siebold comes to see Michael Hamburger. And I, I sort of thought this is a really big idea, this idea, the sort of metaphorical journey in, in discovery. And actually the subtitle of my book is Journeys in Search of Ourselves. And I suppose that's what sort of drew me into it. It was the house, Seabold, coming back from Canada. You know, it was a whole confluence of different factors that came together. Mm. It's interesting. I, I recently read uh, the, the Rings of Saturn and mm. it's a... It's a it's a difficult book, I, I think, uh, is what I would would say about that. Uh, but captivating in in a, in a very strange way, and I can't say that I completely understood the book. I can't say I really understood anything about it. Uh, but there was something that kind of kept me there, and you know, something that reminds me that at a later point in time, I need to to come back to this book and, and, and reinvestigate it and, and pursue it a little bit more. And I think maybe there's something there, uh, a metaphor about ourselves, returning to ourselves, getting to know ourselves. And, you know, this is interesting that you, you mentioned in, in, in the pilgrimage journey of, you know, casting off the clothes as a metaphor for casting off the old identity and, you know, constantly striving to reevaluate who someone is. And I think maybe that is what a, a journey or a pilgrimage is is all about. Yes, I think it's I think you're right. It's a kind of you're it's you're not in your usual place, you're not in your usual clothes, you're not thinking your usual thoughts or doing your usual things. And in a way, you step out of your real life in some way. And mm -hmm. it gives you it gives you space to explore other ideas and other possibilities. Mm -hmm. We're getting a little bit uh, close to time here, and uh, I was wondering if you could uh, read us a, a short passage from the book. Thank you. I I had a, had a look at this earlier, and I was going to read a bit on uh, actually on on the uh, Seabold, but actually, what about uh, what about something on Thoreau? Because I I loved Walden Pond as a pilgrim site, and you know it, it attracted thousands of pilgrim, you know thousands of sort of day trippers, people looking to kind of somehow inhabit Thoreau's idea of living a life worth living. And I've been back many times to Walden Pond, have friends in Concord, and. I'd like to read a bit from that part of the book, if that's okay. This ancient idea of embarking on a physical journey that is truly an inner journey re-emerged in the middle of the 19th century amongst the transcendentalists of New England. The preeminent exponents of this philosophy were Ralph Waldo Emerson and Henry David Thoreau, and the epicenter of the movement was Concord, Massachusetts. 
home to so many other notable New Englanders of the 1800s, including the writers Louisa May Alcott and Nathaniel Hawthorne. Concord was also an important symbol of the freedom and autonomy of the New World. It was here that the American War of Independence had begun. Famously, Paul Revere rode through the night of 18th of April, 1775, to warn the people of Concord that the Redcoats were coming, and the first shots were fired here when the local militia or Minutemen confronted the British troops. Strike out and pursue your own truth, live by your own beliefs and values. The guiding resolution that had led the Pilgrim Fathers to these shores in the 17th century drove the, the cause of independence in the 18th and was born anew with transcendentalism in the 19th century. But this time it was about more than faith and taxes. In June 1893, many years after both Emerson and Thoreau had passed into legend, the wilderness prophet John Muir made a pilgrimage to Concord to see the places where the two men had lived and died, and in particular to see Walden Pond, the place of Thoreau's retreat and meditation, by now firmly established as a shrine to the ideal of free will. Thoreau was the son of a modest pencil maker and a mother who had made sacrifices to fund his education. But in common with the young Siddhartha Gautama, Buddha, he was destined to choose his own path. While this path ultimately led him to make a greater and more enduring impact on the world, its beginnings looked distinctly unpromising. Thoreau eschewed a conventional career in academia or business, preferring instead to work only when money was needed. He long dreamt of living simply on the land, writing in his diary, I want to go soon and live away by the pond where I shall hear only the wind whispering among the reeds. He was to have his wish. After a failed attempt to buy a farm, he was given a piece of land by Emerson and here on this sparsely wooded plot by Walden Pond, not far from his parents' house, he erected a small hut bought from an Irish labourer who had worked on the construction of the nearby Fitchburg Railroad. This is the setting for Walden, Thoreau's account of his time on the pond. A little way into the text, he sets out the profound rationale for his actions. I went to the woods because I wished to live deliberately, to front only the essential facts of life and see if I could not learn what it had to teach and not, when I came to die, discover that I had not lived. First published in 1854, the book quickly captured the imagination of ordinary men and women shackled by working life in nearby Boston and other industrial cities. Over time, the site of Thoreau's hut became a place of pilgrimage, a shrine to the pastoral dream, that timeless desire to strip away the material world, to get back to the land, and to hold, if only for a moment, a true consciousness of what it is to exist. Thoreau's quest to understand how to live and what to live for is one for all ages, and this perhaps explains why his reputation has eclipsed that of Emerson, the man who inspired him. Thoreau was 19 years old and a student at Harvard College when Ralph Waldo Emerson, a leading figure in the transcendental movement, published his influential essay, Nature. In this work, Emerson put forward the idea that God speaks to man through the phenomena of nature and that nature is made to conspire with spirit to emancipate us. At the time of its publication, New England Puritans believed that theirs was the promised land, the new Jerusalem, 
that they were God's chosen people, that the Bible was law, and that man's knowledge of God came only through scripture. As civil and ecclesiastical law was based on the exact word of scripture, the government's authority in New England townships and communities was deemed to come straight from God. The Pilgrim Fathers might have found this direct rule idea helpful in establishing a new colony, but 200 years later, it had less utility. Newly independent and fresh thinking was the order of the day in 19th century Massachusetts. Writing 53 years after the end of the War of Independence, Emerson protested that our age is retrospective. The foregoing generations beheld God and nature face to face. Why should not we have a poetry and philosophy of insight and not of tradition and a religion by revelation to us and not the history of theirs? Emerson was born and raised in a brave new world, and now he was shaping the fundamental philosophy on which it would be built. Emerson's idea that we can understand the very meaning of existence through a direct experience of nature spurred Thoreau's ambition to live life on his own terms, setting out into the wilderness in search of that enlightenment. Thoreau's creation in Walden was more than simply a book on living with nature or a treatise on individual liberty. It was a window into highly spiritual existence in which life in the immediate present connected boundlessly with the unfathomably ancient world. Throughout his life, Thoreau turned to the Bhagavad Gita for inspiration, and in Walden, he describes how every morning in his hut, he would bathe his intellect in its stupendous and cosmogonal philosophy before putting the book aside and going to the well for water, where lo, there I meet the servant of the Brahmin, priest of Brahma and Vishnu and Indra, who still sits in his temple on the Ganges, reading the Vedas, or dwells at the root of a tree with his crust and water jug. Thus, amidst Thoreau's profound spiritual contemplation, the pure Walden water is mingled with the sacred water of the Ganges. Oh, that's so good. Yeah, it's, I love that. He's, he is brilliant, Thoreau, isn't he? Mm-hmm. I can see there's a lot of uh, Emerson here. Emerson, uh, I, I don't know if he introduced Thoreau, uh, Thoreau into, to those ideas, but he has a, a poem himself, uh, I think called Brahma, that you know, kind of s- okay. speaks to this kind of cyclical, endless interconnectivity of, of, of all things. It's so good. I, uh, so for me, I was so grateful to discover uh Thorough, and I was I was I was pretty cynical at first, to be honest. Because if you go to Walden and you see how close it is to Concord, you know he's not really very far from a kind of hot dinner and a bath, you know. And and mm-hmm. and, the, and the and the hut in question, uh, he bought off an Irish labourer who'd 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 been who'd built it himself. But that's not really that's not really the point of it. And I think I think you know John Muir when John Muir goes to visit uh, Concord, and you know, and he 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 goes uh, really as a disciple himself. Um, you know, he goes as a very distinguished writer and 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 someone who's lived out in the Arctic and lived out in the natural world and uh, you know in Yosemite and and out he and he goes to this little kind of really a suburb of of Boston quite honestly and he says well you know I can see why the guy wanted to be here uh, it's fantastic but um, I, you know he says I don't really see that it's a hermitage not not quite. Mm-hmm. John Muir, I, I think, preferred the, the 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 big outdoors, the big open space, the uh, you know the temple of nature, as he referred to it. In fact, I think Emerson, when he was out in Yosemite, uh, went to go visit John Muir, 
and uh, just very briefly, only for a day or two. And I, I think John Muir was so excited that Emerson would, you know, go out into the trail mm-hmm. with him. But he was, uh, I believe, uh, followed by you know a large group of of minders, and yeah. by then very old in age, and you know wasn't quite interested in, in going out into the woods uh, with 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 John Muir as as much as John Muir had hoped. So I think <laughs> there was a little bit of disappointment there and a little bit of maybe, you know, kind of na- natural or nature puritanical <laughs> uh, ideas uh, in there. But um, I, I do get the sense that he was uh, disappointed with, with Emerson. And um, I don't know where this fits in the timeline, but if he goes to uh, Walden after the meeting with, uh, with Emerson out West, then, you know, this might be kind of a, you know, coming to terms with, with that disappointment and maybe realizing that there was something there, uh, although not as, as grand or majestic or, or as, as wonderful as it was out West. Well, his, I, I love this sort of connection. I love this sort of connection between Muir and, and, and the beginning of the, the really the environmental movement mm-hmm. uh, in the U S and going back through Thoreau and then and, and then back to Emerson. But then if you take even one more step backwards, you get to Coleridge. Mm. And I think Emerson was was influenced by 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 you know Coleridge. And Coleridge was a big person of ideas. I mean, he was a poet, of course, but he he was a big thinker. You know, he had this big friendship with Wordsworth, who mm-hmm. in turn had you know, wrote about the natural world and so on. So there's, the, you know, as an Englander, as it were, and 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 having lived in New England, I love this connection that goes all the way from, you know, Coleridge at the eight, end of the 18th uh, century into the 19th century through Emerson and Thoreau, and then into Muir and 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 Roosevelt, and then and then into what we have now, you know, the mm-hmm. Sierra Club and the and the kind of contemporary environmental movement, and you see it has very long history and deep roots. Mm-hmm. And somehow, the thing about Thoreau is he because he's the everyman. You know, you can't you can't aspire to be John Muir. You can't go and live <laughs> out in in Yosemite. You know, none of us can do that. But in a way, we can be thorough. You know, we can go and live. You know, a few miles down the road from our family house and 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 experience nature. And I think that is his appeal in a way. Mm-hmm. And protest the war and protest the taxes and you know, get, get arrested for doing so, <laughs> you know, as you're right, yeah. there's this like very American uh, quality to it, but yeah, you're absolutely right. The, the genealogy of ideas here is, is just so fascinating. Um, I'm thinking when you mentioned Wordsworth, you know, his Tintern Abbey poem where he, you know, mentions or describe, he tries to describe, you know, the su- sublime experience that he has out in the natural world. And he, he mentions something about, you know the feeling connected and feeling the, the the essential life force flowing through all things, right? As as the sublime uh, moment or experience, and it's just wonderful. We see that in Emerson. We see that in in in, in um, uh, Henry David Thoreau. We we see that in in in, in the evolution of these ideas and in, in Muir. It's very very <laughs> very interesting and captivating. Yes, and 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 if 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 we take that right back to the beginning of our conversation, really about the genesis of pilgrimage, you know, it's that 
connection back to nature and that, you know, the immense potency of spring, you know, huge, where everything is growing, you know, this massive fecundity of leaves ready to burst out of their buds and, you know, the birds, I mean, we have migratory birds in Suffolk coming in over the coast, you know, in spring, and you see that huge, and that's what, that's what Chaucer is trying to capture, you know, that in spring, we do yearn to go on pilgrimage. We yearn to get out into the natural world and, and, and get, feel connected. Mm-hmm. Well, hopefully here in the 21st century, more people will get out and, you know, seek out that connection with the natural world because uh, by day, uh, I mean, pandemic notwithstanding, it's, uh, it's uh, crumbling before us, so... Anyway, I think we yeah. can uh, we can, we can talk about this uh, all day, but I want to respect uh, your time and uh, yeah, thank you uh, so much for coming on the podcast and and and, and talking about these things and uh, you know sharing with us uh, the ideas in your book. Thank you so much, Jeremy. I would I would like nothing more than to go and hang out with you at Walden Pond and let's you know <laughs> let's channel a bit of John Muir and Emerson and Thoreau and see see if we can come up with a solution to anything at all. Let me know next time you come to the states and I'll meet you there. <laughs> okay, great, fantastic. So, so your book, um, I believe, comes out March. Um, it comes out March first, twenty twenty one, in the USA, and was published in April. 2020 in the UK. Have these dates been altered or do they sound about right? They, I think that's about, I think that's about right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, um, where, so can, I th- yeah, it's, where can we find you online? You can find me, uh, uh, my blog is whypilgrim.com, uh, which is on WordPress. And my Instagram is, uh, is pilgrim tales or one word. Uh, and really, the blog is the, the the blog is where I channel channel stuff more uh, in depth, and the Instagram, of course, is just you know really as it's intended, just snapshots of what I'm seeing or thinking in the in the moment. Very good. I'll put those links in the show notes. And uh, thank you, thank you again for for speaking with us. That's so it's so nice. It's so nice to have a conversation um, with you, and and I look forward to it. You can find the episode show notes and much more at TravelWritingWorld.com. Please remember to subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app. And if you find the show valuable, please consider leaving a review or supporting the show with only a few dollars a month at TravelWritingWorld.com support.